Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. The saga of the patriarch Jacob has thus far been quite a convoluted one. He has just spent over 20 years in the servitude of his father-in-law Laban. He has fathered 12 sons between four different women and has cheated his way out of Laban's household. He is now an incredibly wealthy man and has a lot to lose. It's no wonder then, as he finds himself within the Syro-Arabian wilderness, that he must be faced with a choice, whether to trust in the God of his forefather Abraham or to fight that God, or more aptly put, to wrestle with him. Let's hear the continuing story of Jacob the usurper. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and herds and camels, into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. In this first section, Jacob displays the fear that he has of his brother's retaliation. This reminds me quite a bit of Cain's fear in chapter 4. He kills his brother Abel in cold blood, but is resistant to live Abel's shepherdic lifestyle out in the open in fear that someone just like himself will kill him like he killed Abel. So he does the opposite of what God tells him to do by building a city and essentially becomes the first herald of structured civilization. Jacob knows that he conned his brother out of Isaac's blessing and his inheritance. He knows that what he did was malicious and self-centered, so he expects the worst out of his brother Esau and shows little remorse for what he did because, like Cain, his concern is for his own well-being. The trick with Scripture's teaching is that it commands us to break bread with our brethren, even if our hospitality isn't reciprocated, and is instead met with violence. The violent deaths of Jesus and the apostles just go to demonstrate this fact. After hearing about how awful Jacob is, we perhaps have been hoping for some character growth, and to be honest, I don't think we get it here at all. The only growth we maybe get is Jacob's growth in ego, Blaze hit the nail on the head. 
Jacob is completely aware of his actions, yet totally complacent toward the negative consequences it causes the people around him. Even when he contemplates the coming interaction with Esau, he separates his wealth and household into two halves, not to protect the lives of the members of either half in case of an attack, but as insurance for his wealth. If one half of his wealth is wasted, the other half will be preserved. What is even worse than that is the opening passage that tells of the messengers of God. In a similar fashion to Laban reaching Jacob during his fleeing in the previous chapter, the messengers reach or encounter Jacob in this chapter also during Jacob's journey away from Mesopotamia. This detail is actually quite interesting. Jacob is performing the role of Bedouin, wandering shepherd, and part of the reality of that role is stumbling across people in the wilderness occasionally. The scriptural expectation is that you treat those random strangers with hospitality. Jacob does not do this with Laban, and he does not do this with these messengers of God. The Hebrew word choice is really interesting as well as it informs this theme of Jacob's behavior toward the different people on his journey. When Laban reaches Jacob in the hill country of Gilead in chapter 31, it uses the word nasag, which is sort of a neutral term. It simply means to reach someone or something in proximity. Then, when the angels meet or reach Jacob on his journey, the word is paga, which can have the connotation of attacking or meeting with force. So paga is a confrontation which would imply that the messengers very well might have been there to warn Jacob of the consequences he may face in light of his wicked actions. We will get more into the third consequence of this chapter next week, uh, but for now I want to allude to it for the sake of highlighting the storytelling technique being used here. So in total we have three occurrences of Jacob being stalled by somebody or some people on his journey. First, like I said, was with Laban. He nasag, he reached Jacob on his journey, which results in Jacob acting hostile toward him, berating him and becoming angry with him. The second occurrence is the messengers of God paga, or confronting Jacob. And before they could even get a word out, Jacob orders them around and sends them to do his bidding. And like good messengers of God, they listen. That alone should be a red flag, however. When any messenger of God is present, they should be the ones who are listened to. However, Before they even say a word, Jacob starts blabbing on when he never really had anything good to say in the first place because he is only concerned with his own skin. The third occurrence of someone stalling Jacob on his journey is when he meets his brother in the next chapter. And I'll wait until next week to flesh that out fully, but for now just remember the pattern that we've heard. And we got a taste of it here in verse 32 where it says Esau has 400 men with him. You get the idea of what's coming. So the pattern has been three total occurrences of Jacob being met with or stalled or confronted, what have you, in the wilderness. This triplet serves to illustrate Jacob's behavior toward the path-crossing stranger. We already saw his behavior as a stranger when he is with Laban, and we likewise see in this chapter what his behavior is toward the stranger, the random person who crosses his path, and we learn that it is equally as disappointing. It's always self-serving, He is always talking his way through these interactions in order to come out on top. You know, if you're familiar with the Star Wars films, I can't help but liken Jacob to Han Solo, the scoundrel who talks himself out of every less-than-self-beneficial situation. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who has said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. 
I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of your steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant, for with only my staff I have crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. The breaking up of Jacob's household into two camps is an interesting detail in this story. I can't help but make the comparison between this and the eventual schism of the kingdom of Israel into Samaria and Judah. This schism in Jacob's household occurs because of Jacob's lack of trust in God's providence. What is even more striking is that Jacob refers to God's promise to Abraham in verse 12, restating that God will do him good and make his offspring as the sand of the sea. Another interesting thing to point out is the inclusion of the word Eber when describing his crossing of the Jordan River. Again, it is important to point out that Eber literally means to cross over, so it inherently carries the connotation of shepherdism. It is Jacob's failure to put his total faith in God, and therefore his failure as a shepherd himself, that splits his camp into two. Jacob is staying true to character and being a slick, crafty speaker. We hear him devise the means of which to maintain his wealth if Esau attacks him, and then immediately after we hear Jacob scheming, we hear him tell God, in pure Christian fashion, just how much he appreciates God, and how poor and pitiful he is, and how undeserving he is of God's love, and the natural conclusion to such a self-loathsome decree is, of course, his empty requests for God to protect him and deliver him, things of which God basically already said he would do. Here, Jacob is again twisting God's words. There is so much subtlety packed in these verses, I'm almost disheartened by the lack of emphasis I've heard placed on the details of these stories throughout my life. People just skim the surface of these stories, throw Jesus into the mix, write their pointless commentaries, and call it good. It is egregious. Listen to what the literature is presenting us with. Hear Jacob once more in this passage. Starting in verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. First of all, Jacob keeps repeating this detail, that God said he would do Jacob good. This is an outright lie on Jacob's part. In verse 9, Jacob references God's commandment in chapter 31, where God told Jacob to return to the land of his kindred. So, let's hear Jacob's version again, and then immediately hear God's version. We'll do a little comparing and contrasting. So, according to Jacob here in chapter 32, God said, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. When in reality, God said, Return to the land of your fathers into your kindred, and I will be with you. God said nothing about doing Jacob good. He issued a commandment for Jacob to return, and a promise to be with Jacob. Nothing more, nothing less. 
Jacob twisted that and spit it back to God as if he could even swindle God the same way he has swindled every other character. Maybe Jacob is a modern American Christian and he thinks that God being with him is the same thing as God doing good for him. But it is not so. And that is just evidence of Jacob's inability to learn from his circumstances. The next example of Jacob doing this twisting of words is in verse 12, where he references God speaking to him at Bethel. Let's pursue the same practice with a comparison. According to Jacob, God said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Back in chapter 28, God actually said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Once again, there is no mention from God about doing good for Jacob. Especially important to notice as well is Jacob's specific reimagining of the imagery regarding his descendants and their multitude. God said that they will be like the dust of the earth, but Jacob says they will be like the sand of the sea. Why is this important? Well, the imagery God uses in chapter 28 is functional. He says that Jacob's descendants will be like the dust of the earth, which serves to remind the hearer of humans being nothing more than the dust of the earth compositionally, and this image also serves to explain the following decree by God regarding Jacob and his descendants that, like the dust, will spread abroad in all directions, so that in Jacob and his descendants all the families of the earth may be blessed. That is what is at the heart of this entire issue. Jacob is meant to be the vessel for God's blessing for all people. Jacob has completely disregarded this central matter. When he then reconstructs the imagery in his own words here in chapter 32, he says that he and his descendants would be not like the dust of the earth, but like the sand of the sea, which is non-functional. The idiom sand of the sea is not active like dust of the earth. It is the sand which is under the water. It is functionally stagnant. Take Jeremiah 15 verse 8. It says, I will make their widows more numerous than the sand of the sea. In Genesis 41, Joseph stores up grain like the sand of the sea. If the image were to be active, it would be the sand of the shore of the sea, which is how God describes Abraham's descendants to Abraham. Jacob is not only twisting God's words from chapter 28, but he is either knowingly or unknowingly communicating his indifference toward the outsider through this alteration of idiom, to communicate an image of stagnation. He is supposed to be like the dust that blows with the wind and goes wherever the wind wills it, blessing any and all who come across his path. But instead, he declares to be like the sand of the sea, abundant, yes, but stagnant and indifferent. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. 
He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third, and all who followed the droves, You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he stayed that night in the camp. Considering everything that has happened leading up to this point, I can't help but hear these instructions from Jacob like just another scheme. He is not giving his brother gifts out of the kindness of his heart. He is doing it to save his own behind. Right, and Jacob says that the gifts are meant to appease his brother. The word translated to appease here is kapar in Hebrew. This is the same word that gets translated to atonement as in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, if you will. It is the same word. If you recall from a very early episode, we discussed how this word literally means to cover. Jacob is doing this atonement for what he did. But again, it's not out of a genuine desire to repent, but for damage control. It's done expressly out of fear. That same night, he arose and took two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. As I said in regards to the previous passage, it seems that Jacob was scheming to provide gifts for Esau in order to save his own behind, not out of a genuine sense of atonement, as Blaze put it. Now, remember that Jacob has every reason to believe that Esau is out to get him. Part of the reason he left his homeland was due to the fear of Esau planning to kill him. In verse 23, we hear that Jacob sends his family and everything else before him, right after he sent ahead all of those presents, leaving himself behind as the very last thing to make it to Esau. Why would he do this? Well, he's buying time. He is allowing every opportunity to play out before he faces Esau himself in hopes that his brother won't strike him down. He is buttering Esau up, expecting these actions to work in his own favor, as always. Who cares about all the people that went ahead of Jacob? If they die by Esau's hand, as long as Jacob makes it out, okay. The next obvious thing that should be discussed is the scene of Jacob wrestling 
with the man. This is a confusing passage on its own, but with the various traditions and interpretations surrounding it, it is all the more difficult to hear the original intent of the story. I don't believe I will solve it completely here today, but I can point out some details that many fail to truly recognize. The first of those is the fact that the narrator does not tell us, the hearers of the story, that the man Jacob fought was indeed God. Similar to the three men that visit Abraham at Mamre, the man in this story is just a man, just as those three men were just men, later referred to as angels. And we have that here as well, because the book of Hosea references these events in Genesis and calls the man a malach, or a messenger. But from Genesis alone, we are not totally able to draw strong conclusions based on the very little evidence we have. Jacob claims that he has seen God face to face, but Jacob has been portrayed as a very untrustworthy character, or a character who twists the realities of his circumstances for the sake of his own benefit and or ego. So, we should not jump to the conclusion that Jacob wrestled God just because that is Jacob's own assertion. The narrator doesn't say anything for the audience to draw such a conclusion in the story, and the narrator in the previous stories leading up to this one illustrated how Jacob defies, twists, and modifies what God says, and is thus untrustworthy when it comes to reports on his dealings with God. Right. A lot of our theology tends to be counterproductive in parts of scripture like this. We tend to read it in the same vague sphere of tradition, but we miss out on the fact that the original audience did not have that said tradition handy to them. And that is the point of this podcast, or one of them at least. That is to try and study the scriptures from the vantage point of those who were among the first to listen. As ancient Semitic peoples living under the boot of the sons of Greece and the culture shock that accompanied it, that's what we're trying to emulate. So whether it really is supposed to be God he's wrestling with, or just some random character, it's really hard to tell. But it's certainly a leap to say that it definitely is the God of Scripture. Because so far, it's been established that we can't trust a word that comes out of Jacob's mouth. Right. It would be in line with certain religious traditions to deify their patriarchal figures. That's the obsession, right? To be like God. In orthodoxy, we call it theosis. We want to be like God uh, or God-like. But at the heart of the matter is this desire to be divine. And more relevant to the matter at hand today is the fact that that was the serpent's declaration. Humans could be like God. And remember, Jacob is the serpent. For Jacob to wrestle God would suggest that Jacob himself is, to some degree, a supernatural deity. This status of semi-deity or demigod would be the status of your typical patriarchal monarch figure within a kingly dynasty or genealogy, such as those of the Egyptians or Babylonians. The god of the people then, upon being impressed by the strength of the human character, would give the patriarch some special status, and the monarch would perhaps change their name, as is typical for monarchs throughout history. Considering the theological ammunition made out of this passage and our own traditions, that seems to be exactly what is happening here upon first reading. When we take a step back, however, and approach the text the way that we often do on this podcast, hearing the entire story, hearing all the details, all the evidence leading up to the scandalizing story, it seems so much more likely that this story is a subversion of that very interpretation. 
we have a choice as listeners to hear the text one way or the other. Either it is a story of Jacob's strength and might and elevated status, thus receiving the new name that connects him to God. Jacob is the Israel who wrestled God and won. Or it was just a man that he wrestled. As the text says, he is just a man, some random guy. And the story is an image of Jacob's wrestling and struggling and persisting against every character he has interacted with, including God. He always strives to come out on top in every deal, every agreement, every situation, the same way he twists God's words and commandments in such a way that he himself ultimately benefits, despite the fact that God's commandments are given for the sake of protecting the neighbor. The crux of the story lies in verse 28. It says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. That word striven is key. It is the Hebrew verb sarah, which is translated to persist, exert, or strive, and only occurs as a verb twice in Scripture. However, it seems to be a sort of jussive or emphatic version of the verb sarar, which means to act as a prince or ruler. It is doubtful that it is a completely unique verb that has no other bearing in the Hebrew language or any other Semitic language. That being said, this verb seems to be used not to say that Jacob persevered, as typical translations would suggest, but to forcefully accuse him of acting as a ruler over man and God, and succeeding, which is much more problematic. He reduces God to a stone at Bethel, he twists God's words for his own benefit, he manipulates his privileged station under God's protection all of these things are Jacob successfully acting as a ruler over God. He likewise swindles and cheats all the people around him, rendering him successful in acting as a ruler over all the humans around him. Therefore, quote, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have acted as a ruler of God and of men and have prevailed. This declaration should be scandalizing for Jacob, coming from this random man in the wilderness. This is a message of condemnation, but like everything else, Jacob twists it into a celebration of himself. When you understand that, it takes on a completely new meaning. This isn't a proclamation of Jacob's success at the WWE WrestleMania. It is an accusation of Jacob's serpent-like behavior. But Jacob would not hear it. He kept wrestling and wrestling so he could maintain his behavior. And what did it accomplish? He will no longer stride toward his eventual demise. He will limp until he is dust once again. I'd also like to talk about the name Israel for a moment because it's an incredibly important one throughout the scriptural corpus for obvious reasons. For one, it derives from the same root that connotes royalty. Sarai was a name meaning my princes, and Sarah means princess. That same root also exists in Arabic, where it can mean a nighttime journey, but also has the connotation of reaching the highest point of something. 
First of all, this describes the content of the story. Jacob wrestles this man at night, and at least from his own estimation, he has reached the highest point in his struggle with God. There is also a parallel example of this in the chapter of the Quran called Al-Isra, which tells of Muhammad's famous night journey to Al-Aqsa, or the furthest mosque. The linguistic similarity between Isra and Israel is obvious to the ears. So Israel is highly lofty. It's a highly lofty term. But like all lofty names in Scripture, it's highly sarcastic and anything but a promotion. It's a sad thing that Jacob is named Israel because that is a name that will stain the people of God for the rest of the story. Almost as if they are cursed to constantly be at odds with God and man. It's no coincidence either that Jacob slash Israel is now permanently wounded. The limp will act as a cancer that will spread to future generations of Israelites. The limp will never go away. Exactly. And when you hear the story, considering the translation I encouraged, that Jacob acted like a ruler to God and men, the sarcasm of the name Israel is all the more pungent as it calls to memory that unfortunate scene we have discussed today. Jacob has every reason to believe that his next encounter with Esau will be one of war, a war of two estranged tribes that were once united under the same house. Jacob responds to this assumption not by fessing up to his past wrongdoing and asking forgiveness and facing Esau himself, but he responds by sending gifts to Esau and by sending his entire family to face Esau before he faces him himself. Then he is alone and wrestles with a random man in the wilderness, and this serves as the closing paragraph to the essay of Jacob's life. He lords over his neighbor, and he lords over God, and no matter his success, it is to his own demise. Genesis is the key to understanding the entire scriptural story, and the function of Israel is one of the most critical to understand. To be an Israelite is to be constantly reminded that your forefathers acted against the will of God and acted violently against men. That's a tough pill to swallow, but that's scripture. God bless you all, and have a wonderful week. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. 